0: And I I think that instrumentals, just like songs, they have, each one has its own feeling that is appropriate to it. And if you play it too fast, you lose that. And if you throw in hot licks, you lose that. You know, you have to respect what that tune is about. Clinch Mountain Backstone, Foggy Mountain Breakdown, don't throw in all the hot licks on that because that, that is like barely suppressed threat and menace. It's dangerous.
1: Happy November, everybody, and welcome to the Picky Fingers Podcast. I'm the same guy who you always hear from at this portion of the show, Keith Billick, your host. You already know me, but I only know some of you, and I do enjoy getting to know more of you. And please make yourself known. Give me some feedback or suggestions about the podcast. You can do that by contacting me at Podcast at gmail.com. And if you are someone who has enjoyed the show and, and find it valuable in some way, please consider being a supporter of the show. And you can do that in several ways. The main way is to go to the Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash banjo podcast to make a donation to keep the show running. I'd really appreciate that. The other ways to support the show are to, to share links with your friends on social media, spread the word. Just uh, in the, you know, the friends and bandmates and fellow musicians who you know. Also, if you hear guests on the show who, who you enjoyed hearing and you run into them in real life, as we say, uh, feel free to mention that you heard them on the show. Or if you know, if you have a favorite player who you would like to appear on the Picky Fingers podcast, feel free to suggest to them to get a hold of me directly. Or you can get a hold of me directly, feel free to put us in touch. I always enjoy hearing your suggestions. So once again, that's Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast at gmail.com to email me or to support the show online. Go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast. Today's guest is a man named Ira Gitlin, and Ira was originally from the New York area. He now resides and has for quite some time in the Washington, DC area. And he has been very well known in bluegrass and banjo circles as a very talented player. He's a formal, former national banjo champion, which means he won the contest at the uh, Winfield Festival. And we discussed that a bit. So I really enjoyed talking to him. I found Ira to be a very cerebral, thoughtful player. And I, I really found useful his suggestions about how to approach tunes, I something that I struggle with is when you learn a fiddle tune and now you have a maybe an improvised solo, what do you do to, to distinguish maybe that solo from anything else that you might play? And that's a challenging aspect of playing the banjo, and I think Ira gives some good suggestions about that. And I've actually found that that is one of the coolest things about doing this podcast, is you get to hear from so many players who you admire and look up to, And find each of their different perspectives And how they approach this stuff And it's really fascinating to see What similarities and what differences They each have So anyway, he's going to tell you all about that Along with plenty of other stories About how he was learning And and his history playing banjo So I won't make you wait any longer Here's Ira Gitlin
0: This is going to sound really kind of corny for a guy my age, you know. I'm in my late 50s, and I started playing banjo in 1973. Mm-hmm. And the impetus was I saw the movie Deliverance, and was inspired by the dueling banjo scene, you know. And it's the thing is it, it's a, it's a it's you've seen it, right? Yeah. It's a it's a powerful movie in general, and you know I was a teenager, and this is one of the first real grown up movies that I remember seeing, and so the emotions of the movie and then the the music as this kind of focal point of this kind of encounter between the suburban guys and the mountain people that they're, you know, kind of getting it onto their turf. Sure. It's a, you know, it's just a very dramatic thing. And right around that time, this guy I had known from summer camp a couple years earlier, I saw him play um, Dueling Banjos on the banjo. And this is really uncharacteristic for me, but I remember thinking at the time, I can play guitar as well as he can. So wow. if he can play banjo, I guess I can too. And that's not the way I normally think, but I did then. And
1: So where was all this happening? Where did you grow up? I know you're a like a DC area guy now. But...
0: Right, but this was, I'm I'm from New York City originally. Okay. And this was, you know, in the New York, Long Island, that area. I'd been playing guitar, various kinds of things on guitar since I was in fifth grade. And this would have been summer before I entered ninth grade, I think, was, okay. was when I picked up the banjo first. And I made myself a crude homemade banjo out of a cookie tin and the drumhead was a my dad was an architect and it was a scrap of mylar like he would use for drafting oh, wow. plans. And flat toothpicks for the frets. Um I whittled friction pegs. It's it's unplayable. I don't know. It was all I had to play for a year and I have no idea how I could even tune it at the time. Right. It
1: yeah, yeah I can't <laughs> imagine it must have sounded like, oh, it was like awful. anything, but it was I guess anything to get your hands engaged and yeah. your brain starting to think about
0: it yeah that was it and you know what what any kid from a you know well-educated family would do I went to the library to see you know are there books on this and they had yeah. uh, they had the Pete Seeger book you know the um how to play the five-string banjo mm-hmm. which uh you know it's still in print I think right it's it's basically as and far the, as I know the yeah. version the version that's in print now I think is is basically the same version as the it's the 1961 or 62 version so the same one that I saw back in the 70s and it's a really interesting book because it doesn't go very deeply into any one thing but it gives you this sort of overview of all of these different approaches to playing the banjo the the bluegrass chapter is not great it's not very accurate it's not very detailed yeah. but when at the time the, that book came out it was per, Pretty much all there was in print on how to play bluegrass banjo, and Mike Seeger, you know Pete's half brother, yeah. had did a lot, a lot of work on that chapter. And so you were still playing your your
1: coffee can at that point with yeah. Seeger's book. So you at least had a a realization that that was something you wanted to get serious about.
0: I don't know, serious might like... be too strong a word at that okay. time for me at age fifteen, but you know,
1: you you pursued it. Yeah. Um, at what point did you get a I guess, some sort of real
0: banjo. How did, how did that come about? Yeah, let's see. What was my first real banjo? I really can't remember. At some point, I had uh, I had a couple of open backs when I was a little later in my teen years. I had a cousin living with us for a little while, and seeing me play banjo, he decided to start getting into it, and he got a... You know, it was one of those cheap Japanese made ones, you know, now they'd yeah. be made in China. A silver
1: tone or a harmony. Or yeah,
0: some something along yeah. those lines. And, you know, I, I would play his sometimes when he wasn't using it. And,
1: and you were going right for the bluegrass style because you had heard the, um, well, the doing banjos?
0: Yes and no. Yes and no. Because, well, like I say, looking at the Seeker book, I'm learning all these other things. I, I tried a little claw hammer. I didn't really get that right until some years later when somebody showed me some things to do different. But, you know, Pete Seeger starts with what he calls his basic strum, which is, it's a weird combination. You know, Clawhammer is all, yeah. you know, all downward. Downward with the nail of the hand, with the nail, the thumb. Mm-hmm. Maybe not technically a downward stroke, but it's, you know, that's what's going on. The right. Seeger basic strum has the same rhythm, you know, that boom, chicka, boom, chicka, boom. But for that initial boom on, on, the, on the beat... He picks up with his index, and then does a oh. strum. I'm putting down my picks here for a minute, and um, you know, if you throw in some hammer-ons and stuff, you sound like Pete Seeger. Yeah. If that to get that loping feel, right? You know,
1: the very folky. Yeah. Sound. Yeah.
0: And I Seeger at that time in in the 70s, you know, he had. Um, I don't know exactly how it was organized, but, you know, he had been involved in uh, efforts to clean up the Hudson River. And he had the Sloop Clearwater, which was modeled on the the boats that, you know, had carried freight up and down the Hudson River okay. in, the, in the 19th century. And the Clearwater would go up and down the river and the areas around. And they would dock at various places and do concerts. So I okay. remember seeing him at the South Street Seaport in in manhattan i remember seeing him someplace out on long island on the north shore of long island long island sound yeah so i actually got to see him a bunch of times and right around when i was starting to play banjo so that you know that that was kind of neat and so i was i was interested in trying to learn something about bluegrass but i wasn't plugged into new york has actually had a a notable bluegrass scene but i was not plugged into it then yeah and so i didn't really know who was who and what was what i would hear, hear some things some of the especially like the college and nonprofit stations, radio stations would have bluegrass stuff. I remember Columbia University, KCR, had WKCR Do FM you remember anything
1: had, specific that you were hearing that you were really drawn to in terms of bands uh, or players?
0: No, I just remember there was some stuff. I remember hearing Keep on the Firing Line, the gospel song. And I don't, rem- I don't remember who the artist was, but I remember okay. it was you know, some really traditional-oriented version. And at some point, I started going out and hearing live bands. And I remember the first two bands I heard live represent in some ways the opposite ends of, of my bluegrass spectrum. Okay. Because one of them was the Wretched Refuge String Band. Did you know those guys? I do not. That was the lunatic fringe of New York bluegrass. Okay. It, was, it was this floating membership, like they would just field whoever was available for a gig. And it was spearheaded by this guy, Richie Schulberg, who died a few years ago. Who used the stage name Citizen Kafka? And Tony Trishka was part of that bunch. Sometimes Marty Cutler. You know, do you know Marty? Uh,
1: not personally, but I know very, who you're very interesting about. banjo yeah.
0: player Andy Statman on mandolin, sure. uh, Matt Glazer on fiddle, yeah. sometimes or, or uh, Kenny Kosack, or just it's a whole bunch of different people,
1: and they're all relatively forward-thinking,
0: more progressive musicians. Yeah, uh, but who also you know were trained in bluegrass fundamentals yeah. and they were wacko. <laughs> I mean, they would do like, you know, some straight ahead old time tune or bluegrass tune. And then they would go and, you know, do some version of some old rock and roll thing. The one I, I really remember was uh, seeing them do this thing. And it's got this catchy twin fiddle thing. And I'm thinking, man, that sounds really familiar. What is it? Why do I know that <laughs> melody? And then Schulberg puts down his fiddling, and steps up to the mic and sings, <laughs> which is a, a traditional Jewish Passover song in Hebrew, and but it's got this kind of you know m- snappy rhythm, major key, and it yeah. makes a great fiddle too. So they would oh, do stuff like that. But then the other band that I remember seeing early on was Ted Lundy and Bob Paisley and the Southern Mountain Boys. Mm-hmm. And you know, people who are listening nowadays who might have just gotten into bluegrass may know Danny Paisley. Who Danny's sure. about my age. Well, Bob Paisley was his dad. Okay. Uh, Who was born down in Ash County, North Carolina, you know, was part of that bunch that came up north to the Mid Atlantic to find work. So Mm -hmm. there was this whole bunch of them around the Mason Dixon line, you know, in northern Maryland, southern Pennsylvania, Delaware, some. And uh, Ola Bell Reed, the great songwriter, was part of that whole community. And so was Bob Paisley, Danny's father. And so was Ted Lundy, a banjo player uh, from Galax, Virginia, you know, these transplanted. Southern Mountain folks. Who, right. I had not really had any contact with the real thing, and yet I knew as soon as I saw them, these guys are the real thing. <laughs>
1: there is an authenticity that you detect.
0: Oh my God, yes! You know the, the way they presented themselves on stage. Ted's banjo playing, which was you know, very good, but fairly straightforward. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, and he was this, such a nice guy. And you know, i you know imagine like you've got this pre-war master tone flathead, and this teenager who doesn't know a hell of a lot about anything comes up to you and asks, you know, if he, he could, I, could I try your banjo? Like, oh, sure, yeah. He's, right. he's the nicest guy, and it's a shame he uh, Ted ended up killing himself. I think he had problems with depression and stuff back oh, in yeah. 1980. And after he did, Bob kept the ba- Bob Paisley kept the band going at various times. Two of Ted's sons played in the band: uh, T.J. Lundy, Ted Junior, and uh, Bobby Lundy. T.J. Mo- plays mandolin and fiddle. Bobby is a great banjo player, hmm. and at some point, also Danny Paisley joined his dad, and then after Bob Paisley died, which was two thousand four, two thousand five, something like that. Okay. Danny kept the band going, and in fact, even kind of kept going, it going even more because I think his dad maybe didn't want to travel, wasn't willing to travel as much as Danny was, and now they're you know nationally known. And that turned
1: into Danny's band that Danny now Paisley tours and, with. And Danny Paisley is a words s- for it. Southern everything.
0: Grass, yeah. yeah. A Good friend of mine, Mark Delaney, is playing banjo with them, and that's yeah. really neat to see. You know? Yeah,
1: for sure. So, how did you actually begin learning? Did you find a teacher around there, or what kind of things were you working on?
0: No, to... I didn't. I was I was learning at a at a book. Th- actually, before I even made my banjo, this this is kind of kind of interesting. I think from a, my historical perspective, when dueling banjos became a hit, Warner Brothers, you know, it was a company that did the film and the recording. They um they released tablature of dueling banjos, and it had the tablature for the guitar and the banjo. Mm -hmm. And the guitar is very accurate. Okay. The banjo is wildly inaccurate. Not so much. And, you know, at the time, what did I know? I I tried playing, I, I can't play this thing. So I thought, well, maybe when I get better, I'll be able to play it. And I just sort of messed around with stuff that followed the chords. Years later, after experience, you know, a lot more experience playing banjo and writing out tablature and trying to transcribe solos, I realized what had happened in a lot of cases. You, you've, you must have transcribed a bunch of stuff off recordings, right?
1: I, I've learned a lot of off recordings. I've never tried to write the music down because it's usually just for my own learning. Well, it doesn't um,
0: have to be written down. Whether you write it down or just do it yeah, in your head, you're yeah, lo- trying sure. to get that individual guy's notes. And, you know, there's, there's certain things that are routinely occurring in bluegrass show, mm-hmm. And one of them is the fifth string, you know, the little short fifth string played with your thumb, is there as a filler note. And a lot of times the first string, the open first string, uh, the D, so the G, high G, which is the fifth string, D is the first string, and a lot of times that first string is also a filler note. So, for instance, you take a melody like Will the Circle Be Unbroken? You know, and if I just play the melody... You know, it sounds like the melody, but it doesn't sound like a banjo arrangement because there's no none of the banjo noise. it's a Moon Klein who uh, used <laughs> to noise. used to play guitar and sing with the Seldom scene. That's his phrase. He would say, "Oh, it's banjo noise." Banjo noise is what makes it sound like a banjo arrangement. Now listen to this. If yep. I play that same melody, but I'm going to do two things. One is if I get if I play a note on the beat and the offbeat rolls around and it's not time for the next note, I'll play the fifth string. And the mm-hmm. other thing is if after that I get to the next beat, and it's still not time, I will repeat the previous melody note. And you get this. And all of a sudden, it's not, I'm all, just playing all of that with my thumb, and now it sounds like a banjo arrangement. A simple one, but... Yeah,
1: it's, now, it, the skeleton th- is there.
0: Right, sure. and that's all thumb. And if after every one of those thumb notes, I use my middle finger. Right? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a little square, it's a little old-timey sounding, but that's, that's real banjo it's stuff, It's getting right? somewhere. Yeah. yeah, and I show this to my, to my students a lot. But anyway, so getting back to the dueling banjos thing. Filler notes. You're not supposed to notice the filler notes. You're supposed to sort of feel that they're there. That's part of the, the ambiance. But you're supposed to really listen to the melody. Mm-hmm. And if the banjo player does his job well, you'll hear that melody. Yes. And that means when you're transcribing, a lot of times there's a, there's a filler note there, but it's hard to tell exactly what it is. Yeah. And if you know, really know the style and know the way the right hand works... You can sense okay well it's probably going to be the first string because the previous two notes blah 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 can make an educated guess right least, uh... right, and you'll probably get most of it right mm-hmm. and I, I swear there's there's a lot of recordings where I've tried slowing them down and it you you can tell there's a note there and you just can't tell what it is, especially if it's a full band you know and there's other instruments yeah whose it can notes be very are difficult it. to hear yeah. and also remember that in nineteen seventy two when that must have been transcribed. That was analog, so when they slowed it down, you know, it goes down by whatever percentage they—an octave, the, probably—an octave, they're... or if they don't slow it down to half speed, you know, maybe a fifth or Somewhere something in between, and it goes <laughs> like that. You know, that's really weird to, to transcribe like that. So, what I figured out years later, looking at, at a copy of it, was whoever transcribed that was probably not a bluegrass banjo player. He was probably a guitar player who knew his music well. He knew how the banjo was tuned. He knew how tablature worked, but he didn't get a lot of the filler notes right. And there's a lot of cases there where if there's like a a first string and a fifth string in that order, you get something unplayable in some of those places. But if you switch them around and do the fifth string and then the first string... All of a sudden, you get something that's a reasonable right-hand pattern. He would get those. He, she, whoever
1: did it would get that part right going fifth to first. Well,
0: what I'm saying is that if you switch the order of the two filler notes Mm -hmm. or replace some of the the first-string filler notes instead of replacing them with fifth strings or vice versa, then you get something playable. Yeah. But (laughs) if you don't really know the style, you wouldn't know that. Then there's other things like, you know... You know, a lick like that, you know, if you're an experienced player, you hear that and you know right away what it is. Low D, hammer on on the second string, Mm -hmm. follow that second string up with the open open. first string, you know. And there was a lick somewhere in there that was kind of like that, except it wasn't that. And, you know... To you or me or most of your listeners, listening to it would say, oh, yeah, I know what that lick is. This guy did not. He had to piece it out note by note, and he didn't get it quite right. Mm-hmm. So this was years later that I went back to look at this, and I realized that was what was going on. It must have been transcribed by somebody not familiar with bluegrass banjo style, but was a good, good, knowledgeable musician.
1: and And just whatever the notes that he figured out was, he put them on the fingerboard wherever there was a, a note that corresponded. To the right. Network. You know, he's
0: somebody who knew how the banjo was tuned and knew that you played with your thumb index and middle. But yeah, that, that's my take. And by the way, I, I think
1: you're probably right. That's what I would.
0: Before think. I, before I started doing music more regularly for a brief while, I was in grad school for, um for classical studies, you know, Greek and Latin language and yeah. history and all that. And one of the things that fascinated me was looking at old manuscripts from the middle ages and, you can learn a lot by looking at the mistakes in the manuscript, because when somebody's copying it, it's, you're, it's, there's always mistakes. And there was this one manuscript I, I chanced on. I was assigned it by um, my prof- professor in one course. He assigned each of us a manuscript in the rare book room to just look over and deliver a report to the class on what you found. Okay. And for some reason, I ended up looking at this. It was a, a well-known work, a work that was widely read in, in in the middle ages. And it was this copy that had been written out just probably a few decades before printing started becoming normal. So this is like the 1400s. And there was this poem in the, in this and the lines of the poem were all out of order. They were jumbled up. And I thought, Whoa, what happened here? But they weren't totally jumbled up. They were like, they were several lines together in one place and then some lines from another place in the poem Right after that, and then the the, it was there were these little chunks that belonged together, but not the whole thing. And you could tell just from the context
1: that they were out of order because it no, didn't no, make because sense. I,
0: I had a I had an accurate text, an accurate modern text. This was, this was this is a well known work, yeah. So I was comparing it to the modern oh, okay. scholarly version, and I realized what by analyzing this, and I I don't know how I exactly my thought process. It was like Sherlock Holmes, who's in one one adventure, he says. I arrived at this result by sitting on a pile of pillows and smoking an ounce of shag tobacco. In other words, basically he just meditated on it Thought until it. until it came by intuition. But I was able to figure out how that poem was arranged on the page of the book that the guy was copying from. Mm-hmm. You know, because there, there must have been, the poem must have occupied part of one page and then spilled over onto the next page and it must have been written in two columns. And if you... I still don't know how I figured it out. You
1: reverse engineered it somehow. Yeah, Yeah. that
0: great way to put it. Reverse engineered it. And what I did was I Xeroxed the the modern edition and then I cut it up into pieces and taped them out so that they matched what was in this. And I thought, what are you going to do to get from this to this? And and it's it's a similar kind of thing with this dueling banjos. Why, you know, instead of saying, oh, this is totally wrong, it's like, why is it totally wrong? Uh Why are some of the things right and other things are just... Clueless, you know? Yeah. I, I find that fascinating.
1: That is really interesting. That's a an interesting way to approach it. Although kind of maddening, I suspect. <laughs> yeah. Trying to trying to find out what's in the mind of banjo players is uh, that's a scary place to go. <laughs> or even non banjo players yeah. as it turns out. So what was the next step in your progression? What kind of things did you work on? And
0: uh, at, at some point I got I got a copy of the Earl Scruggs book after I've been trying to play for about a year. And I learned stuff out of that. And of course, this is the the first edition of the Earl Scruggs book, which has all those famous typos in it. I don't think I was seriously damaged by any of the typos. Yeah. But you know, I learned. I don't already learned a version of Foggy Mountain Breakdown. You know, I learned Earl's Breakdown, Flint Hill Special, uh, a bunch of a bunch of that stuff. Um, I had a friend who started playing guitar around the same time I did, and we would you know we'd get together and play together and. At some point, he started picking up mandolin, and then we had another friend from school who was playing guitar. So I was trying to play with people, but I still wasn't really plugged into the scene such as it was. And then when I went, when I went away to college, I went to Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania and um, ended up playing with a bunch of people there, including a, a friend of mine who's now a history professor who is just one of the best musicians I've ever known. Is a guy named Charles McGovern. Okay. He's, he's a history professor at William & Mary now. Uh, but he played guitar and mandolin, and he was kind of the leading light of the band that I was in uh, so I played banjo, and we had somebody somebody played fiddle and somebody played bass you know basic sure. basic bluegrass instrumentation and so that was i guess for for bluegrass anyway, that was like my first experience of being in a situation where yes we 're looking you know we 're looking to put together material and we 're working on arrangements and figuring out harmony parts. I already had dabbled in that, but this you know this really gave a little more focus to it. We weren't very good by the way. I just want to make that clear.
1: <laughs> well, ho- hopefully we're all still learning. So, yeah, that's it, for sure. It's nice to be able to look back and and think that you've progressed since then. Yeah. So we're most of the parts of your style whatever you would consider your current style in place back then or what were you playing like
0: that's that's hard to say for one thing i had some serious technical issues i had the heel of my hand i was playing with the heel of my hand resting on the drum head okay and since i wasn't hanging out with other bluegrass banjo players there really wasn't anybody to tell me that was wrong yeah (laughs) and um yeah, but I by that point I had learned some melodic style, and I was always interested in a bunch of different kinds of music. So I was I was occasionally trying things out on banjo that you know were well outside of the the bluegrass like realm, pop
1: music or classical.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, just little bits of all sorts of things. Okay, part of part of me the way I'm, my mind works for music is I, I think I'm maybe not so much a, a player as I am an arranger. I mean, even when I'm playing, I, some part of me is arranging. And, you know, playing in a band that rehearses, you can actually arrange stuff. You can actually, instead of just jamming, you can say, hey, you know, you do that line on the fiddle and I'll harmonize it on the banjo or whatever.
1: Do you view that as one of your strong points as a band member, as having it those could ideas?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think it could be. I mean, I don't I don't get to give full scope to it in the bands I play in, but there's some bands I play bass in. And definitely right. I'm thinking, you know, you can delineate the parts of a song by just changing the bass line, you know. Right. Two beat on the verse, walking on the chorus. Sustaining a note. Right, sustaining it out, a note. Yeah. You know, higher octave on the verses, lower on the chorus. It's stuff like that that can just tell the listener in a way that they might not even be consciously aware of, hey, something different is happening here. And you don't just do that randomly. You do it, you know, to match the sections of, of the of the arrangement. That's one kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, on banjo backup, you know, you know, you could chop, you know, which is a very sort of rhythmic but very neutral way to back up. You know, you could do yeah. you could do rolling stuff, um, you know, which is and you can keep it very neutral. You know, just kind of Just make some banjo noise. Right. right. Text texture. <laughs> not play the the notes, you know, in any in any chord there's two notes, the first the first note, the root and the note that's a fifth above. That's the outline of the tonality. So for a G chord I know know you know this but maybe some of your listeners might yeah go ahead for a G chord well G is the root you don't have the root you don't have the chord but if I just play that note and say what chord is that you have no idea it could be you know it could be part of an E flat chord an E minor it could be part of an A seventh blah 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 as soon as you play the fifth along with it the fifth is a finger pointing at the root saying that's the root and that's what rock guys will call a power chord. It's sure. not really a full chord. It's just w- the one and the five. One, five you know, when you go... Right, that's, you know, that's what you're hearing in, in, in heavy metal and a, a lot. And it's, you know, it, it tells you the basic tonality, doesn't tell you if it's major or minor. And there's one more note that makes a major or minor chord, and that's the third. Sure. You know, So in, in a G chord... It's the third note of the scale, G A G A B. you know, going up the scale. And that third note is a B, mm-hmm. and that tells you that it's major. And it also makes the, fills out the thing and makes it rich and savory. Or if you make it, instead of a B, you play a B flat, leave the, the G and the D the same. It's rich and savory, but with a different flavor, yeah. but still... And if you steer clear of that third note, it just, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't get in the way of whatever is important to happen, which, yeah. you know, if the singer is singing, that's the important thing. If a fiddle is playing playing a fiddle solo, that's the important thing. Yes. But you could also, depending on the feel you want for the song, you could have something more assertive. Like, for for one thing, you can you can put in, you know, little filler licks at the end of the line, so, you know... And by the way, I, I am really not much of a singer, so I'm going to sing just for demonstration purposes. <laughs> okay. and that's, that's I'll that's, auto-tune
1: it before yeah, I release please, the... Please. Uh, <laughs> yeah,
0: please. Um, you know, so you say... Um, yeah. I was standing by my window on a cold and cloudy day. You hear that? There's a little space to fill. You know, that's the place to do it. Yeah. You know, where, where it's not going to get in the way. But, you know, maybe maybe people who are a little better tastefully than I am might find ways to put in more assertive stuff that would complement the singing. You know, and you could have much denser backup. You know, I was standing by my window On a cold and cloudy day I probably wouldn't have sounded really good if I did it in a band, but you know, you there's more stuff you can do, and it's it's kind of a judgment call. And if you're, you know, if you're playing in a band as opposed to a jam session, you know, everybody in the band kind of gets to say, "Hey, you know, that's a little too much," or "Hey, I like that, do more of it," you know. And
1: yeah, that that's something that comes with experience. I think yeah. is is knowing what that's going to do to the sound and choosing whether that's a good idea. Or right.
0: Not, <laughs> of course, you know the the old saying, you know. Good judgment comes from experience. Experience comes from bad judgment. Bad judgment. Right? <laughs> yep, I do. You know, and if you're you're playing like you're, oh man, these are such cool licks, and then everybody's giving you dirty looks. Well, okay, that's, you know, that tells you,
1: got to break a few eggs, right? Yeah, to, right. to make an omelet. So speaking of your penchant for arranging, did, how did that lead into? I know eventually you were a like a festival contest competitor. You ended up uh, winning the the best known of the contest, the, the Walnut Valley, right. Which I imagine is, your arranging skills had a lot to do with that.
0: They did. And um, Walnut Valley is, it's officially the, the Walnut Valley Festival, but it's in Winfield, Kansas, and that's, yep. a lot of people would just call it Winfield. It's Winfield, right. Yeah, I, I would not have thought to go out there, but for um, Tony Furtado, mm-hmm. you know, was, um, do you know where, where is Tony living now? Is he in, I thought it was Colorado. But I couldn't remember could that be a long time ago. Well, he was there at some point. I, he, he was also, I think he was in Portland at some point, but yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, I couldn't say for sure. I see him on Facebook and, you know, right. uh, but Tony is this wonderful player. He doesn't work in the bluegrass realm that much, but, um, at the time that I met him, he was playing with Laurie Lewis. You know, he's, he's, mm-hmm. he's a native of San Francisco Bay area and he was really young. I mean, he started playing with Laurie when he was about 19 or 20, I think. And, Amazing player, an amazing approach to locating notes on the fingerboard and the left hand fingering. His left hand doesn't look like anybody else's. You watch Bela Fleck play amazing stuff, and you can see rationally what Bela is doing. You watch Tony play, and it's like, what? <laughs> people, I've, I've heard many people say this. His hand looks like a spider crawling all up and down wow. the fingerboard. Have you ever seen him play? I don't think oh, so. you, You've got don't. to see it. It's, it's, it's amazing. And then for a couple of years— I had moved down to Washington, D.C. by this point, And for a couple of years, Tony was living in, in the D.C. area. So I would run into him at parties and I'd get a lot of chances to see him play close up and jam with him. And I was asking him for advice. You know, this guy's a bunch younger than me, but way better player, you know. And uh, he said, well, you know, transcribe Earl. So I started, I thought, okay, I'll go for a recording that's not in the Scruggs book. And yeah. I picked Fireball Mail. Yeah. Uh- Oh, dang. Yeah, I'm not warmed up here. I'm sorry. And that's pretty close to the way Earl played it on the, the Foggy Mountain Banjo album in 61, I think it was. And, you know, so I, I started transcribing it. I transcribed the up-the-neck break. But at some point, my tendency to want to put my own stamp on it took over. And I started thinking, well, what else can I do? And yeah. I started coming up with these things. And this, then there was this one thing where I thought, hey, what would Tony Furtado do? <laughs> and I cannot play it up to tempo anymore. I, I had it practiced up for the Winfield contest. And every now and then I'll play it. And like I say, I really haven't played much today. So I'm, I'm kind of not warmed up. But um, so I'll... I'll finish out the previous breaks so that you can get a sense of before it goes yeah. off the deep yeah, end yeah perfect so. You know, I started, you know, that's, that's, it's, it's kind of weird sounding, but it's pretty, it kind of makes sense. Right. But at some point. So I'm reaching up second fret, third fret, third, fifth, fourth, fifth, oh, fifth, fifth, fret. seventh. And I'm thinking. Wait, let's go for it. Yeah. You know, let's we Keep can we, we can take it farther than that. Yeah. That's the open first string. Open strings give you just a little bit of time to make a big a, jump, a pivot. Yeah. So wow. I'm moving up there, and now I'm at the at the ninth, tenth, eleventh fret, and there's the fifteenth fret. So it's like it was, it was and it was like a game. It was like, hey. How far can I take this? And and at the time I came up with this, I, I, it took me all night to come up with that arrangement. And I thought, well, this is purely a theoretical possibility. It cannot be played up to tempo. But you know what? <laughs> if you practice it, it can. Uh, yeah, you... And I got it up to about, I think I, I got up to about 126 beats a minute, which is just a little bit slower than yeah. um, the Scruggs recording of it. And, you know, a, a respectable speed for that song. And especially for that. But getting back to arranging listen if if you listen to that arrangement, I'm not going to inflict it on you again, but even though it does all sorts of weird things, it follows the basic contours of the melody going up the high point of it is in the same place that the high point is of the basic melody Wow okay. and you know it doesn't track it totally, obviously because it's doing some different stuff but i you know you get weird things like you, you know the flat set the flat seven, which is a standard bluesy note mm-hmm and the flat five, which is a less standard, but still kind of bluesy you note. Know. Yeah, so, you so at least
1: felt like, even though you were getting out there, it was still like a good faith playing of, of the song through that lens of what would Tony Furtado
0: do? Yeah, kind of. And, you know, when I actually did it in the contest, I started out, the first time through, I did it as close as I could to the way Earl did it. And then the, the variations got... You know, I did a, a variation. Um, um, shoot, I can't remember. It's been ages. Yeah. But, you know, that had little... You know, little bits of melodic technique, you know, like what Bill Keith pioneered in the 60s, where you, you get portions of scales by alternating every note on a different string. So it's kind of zigzags across the fingerboard. But if you listen to it... You know, and a guitar player yeah. would play. You know, would play several notes on one string, several notes on the next string. This is like every note on a different string. It's yeah. like, it's like, it's like a Picasso painting where, you know, the mouth is there, one eye is there, one eye <laughs> yeah. is on the other side of the mouth, but it's all there. And in your mind, you can put it together and see, oh yeah, that's a face. But there's a slight disorientation <laughs> yeah. factor. and that sure. and that the listener doesn't get disoriented listening to that, but the player who's learning it if they haven't before they they've internalized that technique it's really weird and Mm. I've you know shown this to some of my students who've gotten okay with the Scruggs style and it's you know it's it's interesting it's watching them go back to square one practically wow so you know I did that you know something that had bits of melodic stuff and some bluesy notes and then I did an up the neck break and I figured hey let's have a little joke in there so you know Scruggs would go something like that, where, so I did, instead of that, I did, you know, so a little bit of the Andy Griffith theme, but not to, not to harp on it, just, just enough so that by the time you say, oh yeah, I see what that is, I've moved on, you know? Yeah. So that was, I thought it was kind of a cute thing. And, and I then, never
1: realized how similar some of the very well-known Scruggs, like, actually they <laughs> actually sound like that, kind of. The-
0: yeah, yeah. You know, and then, and then the fourth time through was that wild, what would Tony do thing. And then I toned it back a little. And then the last one, I was really proud of this. The last one sounded very Scruggsy. And if you, if you know the recording, you'll, you'll say, man, I know that. Where do I know that from? It's Josh Graves' Dobro break. Oh, played as like... a banjo break, which is... Um, and, you know, being a different musician, he articulated the melody differently from the way Scruggs would... <laughs> So you know, there's certain things like that da da, da 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 that you hear in the Dobro break. That, yeah, that's the part yeah, I recognize. Yeah. The best, da, 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 yeah. yeah. And also um, the second line. So he doesn't get to that note right on the beat where it's the you'd second, expect it. He, beat, it yeah. comes comes a little after that, yeah. So that that was the idea was to do something that still sounded like a fairly straight-ahead bluegrass version. And it would be recognizable, but it wouldn't be the Scruggs thing that that you know. And it's yeah. kind of a little, sort of playing little jokes with the listener. You know, it's like, "Hey, you recognize this, huh?"
1: Yeah, it's an inside <laughs> joke in some ways, oh, yeah. but it, it sounds good on its own either way. Right, so.
0: and you know, I think there's a lot, probably a lot more that could be done like that because the dobro and the banjo. You know, in bluegrass, the dobro is usually tuned to an open G chord in the first sec, second, and third, and fourth strings are exactly the same as on a banjo. Yep. So, you know, we, we tend to do more rolling. Dobro will let a note sing out a little more. But, so you add some of those filler notes in, but you can get the main articulations off of a dobro part. And that's something else I like to do is like to... I remember um, banjo player I know out on the West Coast, Sonia Schell, uh, mm-hmm. lives in the Bay Area. Now, of course, I'm in touch with her on Facebook, but she doesn't use it much. But at one time we, we were in touch a little bit more and she... She was saying that she had a recording session to do for somebody and they wanted to do Clinch Mountain Backstep and her issue was she didn't just want to do it, you know, just the way you always hear it, but she didn't want to do all sorts of melodic style and weird stuff because that wouldn't be appropriate for that tune. So she was saying this was like what she was working through at the time and I remember thinking, okay, well what what would I do for Clinch Mountain Backstep that's straight ahead but different, different but not and okay, so I'm going to yeah. So now we now we go into the sidebar. The Johnson Mountain Boys recorded a um, a song called well an instrumental called Newton Grove. I think it's come. I think it's come back to the fore a little because I think Russ Carson, uh, you know, who's with Ricky Skaggs now, um, has been playing it. Oh, he might even have recorded it on on one of his own recordings. And it's it's got that minor pentatonic feel. You know, minor pentatonic is you know the blues scale basically, and it's got th- that same kind of minor pentatonic feel as Clinch Mountain Backstep, but it's a different melody. It actually the melody comes from an old Cajun song, and it's um. And what Richard did was, you know, that's the melody note, but he doesn't, and that's, I'm playing it there on the first string, third fret, which yeah. when you hear it, that's the first place you go to look for that note, but that's not where he played it. He played it, he slid into it on the second string, B. got it with his index, and then forward roll. You know, and there's the first string open. So he's getting a lot of those notes coming up as they come up in the roll. And I thought, hey, can you apply that to Clinch Mountain backstep? You know, something like that. Yeah. So it, it's something that's it's appropriate to the tune. It doesn't it doesn't disturb the the ethos of the tune. Can I use a word like ethos in this podcast? You can say whatever you want. All right, yeah. And, you know, whereas if I did, you know... You know, that that would be, oh, you know, this guy's trying to show off. So it doesn't draw attention to, you know, hey, look at how virtuosic I am. The attention should be on that tune. But it does something a little different from what you normally hear. And this is another beef of mine. I think there's... There's, I think, a sort of a feeling among a lot of, not, not professional players, but people who are like decent jam session players, you know, who maybe don't perform, but, you know, decent players, that when you play an instrumental, you know, it's all, it's, that's where you throw in all your, all your hot licks and, you, and that all instrumentals are basically forums for that. <laughs> Vehicles. For and you, I, yeah. I think that instrumentals, just like songs, they have, each one has its own feeling that is appropriate to it. You know, and you take something like, um, like ground speed or, um, mm-hmm. you know, ground speed is a, it's kind of a ragtimey thing uh, or um, theme time, the Bill Emerson instrumental. Yeah.
2: You
0: know, those are, yeah, those are just like happy romps and you can throw in all your hot licks and that's just, it's all in good fun. Yeah. Take something though like um, Gold Rush, you know the Bill Monroe Byron Burline um, instrumental. Play it to, to me. Gold Rush has this; it's got this stately, noble feel to it. And if you play it too fast, you lose that. And if you throw in hot licks, you lose that. You know, you have to respect what that tune is about. Clinch Mountain Back Foggy Mountain Breakdown. Don't throw in all the hot licks on that because that that is like barely suppressed threat and menace it's dangerous yeah clinch mountain backstep is kind of serious and lonesome you know that that's that's my take on him I and it it just it kind of bothers me when i when you see somebody who's not respecting that it's like that's athletics that's not music yeah or it's athletics expressed through music or music expressed i don't yeah. know it's something Feat, like that
1: feats of strength and dexterity
0: yes and, right are... it, yeah yeah very good no, um, I see.
1: And and what you said about trying to f- to fit that melody within a, a forward roll similar to the Johnson Mountain Boys tune, it almost strikes me. So I had a conversation with Tom Neckville, and a lot of what he does is solving little things that he perceives as issues with a traditional banjo design. You're, you're talking with about it, ways the, of, the,
0: physical, the physical banjo, yeah. With his design not, not of the playing. banjos, yeah. but
1: what you described strikes me as a similar thing, but with the notes of a melody. You're you're using a new tool to to get those notes, yeah. I get in a it. I new and innovative way, um,
0: but but bar, but it's not a tool I invented. It's a tool that I borrowed from somewhere else, and so hey, I can use that right. tool here. Yeah. And um, but just, it's a
1: really good approach for for people like often myself who I don't know I don't know how to think of new ideas of what to do. Like, where do you just come up with ideas? And that it's really good to have approaches like that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That but also, as, as far as like what's appropriate to the song, I think people don't have as much of an issue with that when it's a song with words because the words kind of tell you what the feeling is about, yes, you know like a gospel song you know you're you're not going to throw in the in fact a lot of gospel songs, people won't do full breaks, they'll do turnarounds even if even if it's a you know an up tempo song where you know a full break wouldn't take happen, too long, yeah. yeah, I think maybe what's operating in people's subconscious there is. You know, we want to break here, but we don't want to detract too much from the message of the song. The message is the important thing, and if the message is the important thing, then everything else that goes on in that song has to support that.
1: Yeah, and just because it doesn't have the lyrics, doesn't necessarily mean that there's no yeah meaning or message or an- anoth- reference.
0: An- another great example: um, "Darlin', think of what you've done." You know, mm-hmm. the Stanley Brothers thing. You know. <laughs> You know, is it true that I've lost you? Am I not the only one? After all this pain and sorrow, darling, think of what you've done. I mean, if you just wrote that out as poetry, people would say, oh, my God, that is is, is this heartbreaking yeah. poem about resignation and, and despair, you know, but for the first 10 years that I knew that song, you only ever heard it done... And the Stanley Brothers didn't do it that fast. And in fact, the Stanley Brothers did it even slower than the recorded version because King Records speeded it up when they mastered it. I've, I found out about that um, later. Wow. But Hot Rise used to do it really slow, slower. You know, like about about that speed. And um, you know, if you get a good driving rhythm behind it, it's great. Mm-hmm. But it's like a whole different song when you slow it down like that. It means something different. You'll play it differently when you, you know, listen to the words at that tempo. Mm-hmm. So it's, not, it's no longer just a, a good time up-tempo throwaway. It's, it's like a real serious song now.
1: And they must have thought that that yeah. more appropriately related the message.
0: Yeah, I think the thing about speeding, uh, King Records speeding up the master, I think I might have heard about that from one of the guys in Hot Rise back in, in the 80s when I was, you know, when I wasn't playing professionally. I heard from someone that if you slow down, slow it down, that it sounds, and I'm doing air quotes here, more like the Stanley Brothers, which is kind of weird because, you know, it is the Stanley Brothers. Yeah. But on the on the recording, it's in, in the key of D flat, which a lot of people will call C sharp. And mm. I had sort of assumed, okay, they were, their instruments were tuned sharp, which right. guys did sometimes back yep. then. And they capoed at the fifth fret and were playing like it was in C. But... Thinking about this, you know, if you slow it down, it sounds more like the Stanley brothers. Huh. Well, I got a chance to ask Ralph Stanley about that at a festival workshop once. And um, he said, I don't know what they did after we recorded it, but we recorded it in B. Okay. So that's a full whole tone a whole lower. Step. Yeah. Whole step, which is, I think, in the analog realm, I think that translates to about 10 or 11% difference in speed. Okay. So the Stanleys weren't doing it wicked fast to begin with. And then slow that down by about, you know, 10%. Right. And you're getting something that's a little closer to what Pretty Hot close Rise is doing. Rise, yeah. yeah. Maybe a little faster than that, but even... And that's assuming they
1: were in tune when they thought they were in B to begin with. Who knows? Yeah, what, yeah. What other...
0: Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to say. Of uh, course, I don't know. Maybe in recording studios in those days, did they have electronic tuners? They might have had a big strobe tuner that only a recording could studio say. could afford. Yeah. I don't know. I'd...
1: Yeah, it's possible. Or tuning forks, I would imagine, were... We should...
0: Yeah, available. well, tuning forks, yeah, for sure. We haven't talked about your instrument yet. Ah, the instrument. Yeah, tell me what you have here. Okay, well, the, the neck of this is patterned after a Gibson RB7 neck. That was one of the right. top tension models. I got this with a, a banjo I ordered from uh, the American-made banjo company or, who used the brand name Kel Croydon, right. the, the, an old disused brand name that they acquired the rights to. Mm-hmm. Robin Smith did this. And he's, you know, one of the great guys for aftermarket necks or, or even whole banjos. But the name on the headstock where it would say Gibson, it actually says Gitlin, which is why yeah, I, name. Noticed, I noticed And that. He really did a great job of copying the typeface that Gibson used, or I guess it's not a typeface if it's inlay, but the inlay looks like, and it doesn't look like most of the Gibson inlays, it looks like. They used a slightly different version for the top tension models and he really got that really nice.
1: Yeah, it it takes a double or triple take to realize that exactly. it, it says
0: Gitlin. And I remember this one jam session I was in where we were playing for about two hours before one of the guys in the play says, Oh, I just realized that's your name on the headstock. <laughs> and it took him two hours to realize it, and that was exactly the way I wanted it to work. Right. So so that's that's the the neck. And and like the top tension models, it has a a radius fingerboard, you know, a little bit of an arch, supposedly more ergonomic. The pot, this is, this is one of my great stories. I, I go to thrift stores all the time. Almost everything I wear is from thrift stores. I've gotten great stuff.
1: That's a heck of a shirt, by the way. Was that a thrift store find?
0: Yeah, that was. That's a great one. It's an an Indonesian batik. Yeah. Um, The pot is from a tenor banjo that I got in the Salvation Army thrift store in Bladensburg, Maryland, about 20 years ago. And, I knew from experience at that store they never come down on the price of anything. And if you look at it, you know, the the style 11s had that uh, gaudy. I'm not going to take it off because it's going to mess with the headphones that's here. That's fine. But it had, you know, it had that gaudy silk screened painted on right. artwork on the back on the perloid. Yeah. Perloid plastic, mother of toilet seat, as they say in the exactly. guitar business. And you notice that that's not here. Mm-hmm. Somebody scraped that design off and crudely refinished it brown it's not a it's not a real professional job Mm -hmm. and when i got it the the shell the wooden shell was painted white and i mean like they slathered on house paint
1: like house paint okay
0: yeah and in fact when i when i stripped it to refinish it the original navy blue paint was underneath it it was such you know i figured it's such a crude job i'm bet they didn't take off the original finish to do that you know and you were right yeah sure enough and uh, there's the stretcher band is broken, and they screwed a, a plate of brass over it.
1: So there's a little patch there. Yeah, and, and I should mention that it's it's not actually a top tension. The the neck is a top tension style, but right, it's right. not in fact a top tension. Hoop.
0: Yeah, and this is the the style eleven banjos that was that wasn't part of the Gibson Master Tone line. Master Tone was you know their name for the banjos that had had tone rings. Yeah. This, there was a few models though that were just sub Master Tone. All of the construction is the same, but no tone ring. Instead, it's just got a little brass rod bent into a hoop sitting on top of the shell that the skin bears down on. There's a hole in the side of the resonator, which I think was probably for a cord for an electric light. Back in the days when they had skin heads, they um, they would sometimes put a light bulb in there to dry out the skin head on a humid day.
1: Oh interesting. I
0: I worked in a western swing band I played bass in. Our old drummer was considerably older than the rest of us. And he was saying that back like in the forties and fifties, if he if it was a rainy day and he was uh, you know playing at a at a restaurant or a bar, first thing he would do would go back to the kitchen and hold his drums one by one over the burners of the stove to dry out the heads. Yeah. That's incredible. So this is a you know, kind of a way to accomplish that same thing.
1: Yeah, anyway, I, I bet you're right. So that still only has the, it, it still does not have a true uh, um, tone, tone ring. Brass tone ring. No, it still and, has the hoop.
0: And, you know, there are people, well-known players for, well, first of all, Scruggs was playing one of these in 45 when he joined Billman Rose Band. He didn't get his RB3, the one that he later traded to Don Reno. Mm-hmm. He didn't get that for several months after that. And there's, there's recordings from March of 46 where you can hear Scruggs playing on it and it, crackles of course he probably had that head tightened down to within an inch of its life yeah and um anyway so so they wanted two hundred dollars for this and it the tenor neck was unusable it was somebody had played that thing hard put it through the ringer but that's not why you wanted it anyway right so. right but you know and i could see how really beat up it is and you can see the flange is, is bent as a lot of them are yeah, there's these...
1: there's about a at least a quarter inch gap there in between the, yeah here um, on that side yeah
0: and the flange and um, I didn't know as much about these back 20 years ago, I, but I, I knew it was Gibson because I could see the pattern of the, the flange cutouts. And I took off the resonator, and unlike many examples of this model, it actually had Gibson numbers in it, you know, hmm. factory order numbers. And yeah. I, I knew that those looked like the kind of numbers Gibson used, but I wasn't sure it was going to be worth I, – I didn't know if it was going to be playable – you know, because it didn't have a five-string neck, didn't have strings on it. Who could tell?
1: Had some issues, yeah. Yeah.
0: So I called up Mike Munford. This is before cell phones. I I went over to... um
1: Like a payphone
0: I went over to a payphone down yeah. the block, and I called up Munford, and I described it to him. And I said, you know, is it worth what they're asking? He says, oh, yeah, buy it right away. Uh-huh. So I did. And, you know, there's some great players nowadays who are playing banchos, either old ones or new ones, you know, that have this kind of configuration. The yeah. all the same metal parts except just the brass hoop. Um Sammy Sheeler plays one sometimes. I think really? he's had some back issues. A lot of banjo players do after a number yeah, of how years. How much weight
1: do you figure you're saved by that at least two pounds. A couple pounds? Two yeah.
0: pounds at least. Mm-hmm. Um Sammy does does that some uh Craig Smith, who is not as well known to the general public, is a great player in North Carolina. All the professional players know who he is and yeah. You know he's been on on albums by um, David Greer and Jerry Douglas. Jerry Douglas and is where I
1: know his playing from from, yeah. from the Slide
0: Rule album, right? right. And Laurie Lewis and David Parmley mm-hmm. and um, Bobby Hicks. I mean, you know these the guys guys like that. You know, know what a great player he is. And he used to he used to play a fair bit with Laurie when, when she would play on the East Coast. Okay, but he he has um, he got an old style eleven in the early days of eBay. Um, oh, wow. and I've played his and his is great. Well you're
1: you're making me very jealous. I think the days of these thrift store finds and even an eBay find uh, yeah. is probably over. But I have never it doesn't fa- keep me from looking every once in a while.
0: You gotta check. Right. I've never found another decent banjo in a thrift store. I found right. some, you know, junkers like you know, beginner might play, you know, be okay for beginner to play on. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I've never never found an I've never found another pre war Gibson in a thrift store. Oh, yeah. You're saving it for me, hopefully. To yeah, find yeah. It instead.
1: Um so we we're pretty much out of time, but uh what's the best way for people to find your music and, and figure out what you've been up to?
0: Well, um thanks for asking. Uh I do have a website and believe it or not, it's IraGitlin.com. dot com. I never would have guessed. I R A G I T L I N dot com and um you know, I've got my my performance schedule, little, you know, little blurb about who I am. I've, I've got a page about my teaching because I, you know, I teach a lot of private lessons and music camps and stuff. I've got a few clips right on my site, but also a bunch of links to YouTube of me playing. Not yeah. all bluegrass, a lot of different things. I play with a honky tonk country band and a Western swing band and so forth. You play a fair bit of upright bass too. We didn't really talk about that, but. Um... Right, right. I, I play upright bass with the Western swing bands and i played upright bass with several fairly big names in bluegrass that I don't think my banjo playing is necessarily good enough to to pass muster but I think I held my own with them on bass. Good, good. Um and stuff like that. And you know, if anybody's in the, in the Washington DC area, you know, look me up, give me give me an email. There's a contact page, you know, on my website also. Yeah. Cuz I'm always I'm always interested in meeting people in the bluegrass and the banjo community. It's it's great that we have It's not a geographical community, but it is a community, but it's spread all over the world. And I I just love that. We We all got to stick together. And we do. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Great. Well, hey, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for uh, giving us your time. Okay.
0: My pleasure, Keith. Thanks for asking me to do this. Take care.
1: And that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Picky Fingers podcast with special guest Ira Gitlin. Once again, you can email me, by going to picky banjo podcast at gmail.com. You can support the show, tell all your friends, share links, spread the word. But also, if you'd like to financially support the show, that can be done at patreon.com slash banjo podcast. And I look forward to hearing from you and also seeing you next time for the next episode. Cheers.